This episode is sponsored by CDN77. Trusted by the European Space Agency, CDN77 supports the latest tech innovations and provides fast, secure, and reliable content delivery solutions all around the world. Learn more at cdn77.com LNL. Hello and welcome to episode 40 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 25th of June 2018. I'm Joe and with me are Phelim. Good evening. Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. So we've got a full house finally. Phelim, you're back from being worked half to death. Indeed. And uh, even managed to meet up with you at the weekend while you were in London, which was good fun. Yeah, bizarre. Yes, so uh, we'll have a brief chat about Fostalk Live later. Uh, but let's get into some news that we have missed because it, it's been a month since we did a proper news show. Something that we briefly, briefly talked about at the beginning of the Fostalk Live show was Microsoft buying GitHub. Phelim, you have not had anything to say about this. Uh, presumably, you're quite in favor of this then. Absolutely, because I, for one, am with our overlords and think they're brilliant now because they heart Linux. <laughs> um I don't know what to feel about this one. To be honest, I don't like the fact that yet another company has been bought by another massive conglomerate company. Like, yes, I particularly am not a fan of Microsoft, but it, I would have felt uneasy about this if it had been Google or Oracle or any of the big ones. Um, I just think it's a shame that yet another company has to feel... Well, I mean, I think they got themselves in this situation by taking a whole lot of VC funding. So, yeah, it's... It's unfortunate that companies can't just kind of set out to make a product, make it fundable, either charge people for or have a sustainable business model that they can just plod along making a product that people want to use. Um, the whole sort of race to be absolutely massive as quick as possible, you know, with a tenfold increase in profits and then flog it, it just annoys me because, yeah, okay, fair enough, that's the tech world, but... You know, it'd be nice to have sustainability because there's a lot of people out there who would be uneasy that any one particular sort of non-independent company would have the um, the ownership of all this type of stuff because there's more in there than just code. You know, it's not just, you know, the latest version of Unzip tool or whatever. There's a lot of like non-software in there and there's a lot of stuff in there that I would imagine they're going to have to purge out because there's a lot of governments that Microsoft works with, as we have only just found out with the ICE stuff and things like that, where they could put pressure on them that, hey, you've got a piece of software in there that's a circumvention of human rights stuff that we don't like, you know, and we don't want you to have that in there. And, you know, what's going to happen is GitHub going to become sort of a, an extension of whatever countries they're working on as a sort of clearinghouse for getting rid of it. And have you ever used GitHub then? I have personally done one of the tutorials for about two minutes um, years ago, and I've used like four gists, I think they call them. Never uploaded any of my own code, but I've patched like the tiniest bit of PHP. Um, but I've definitely downloaded loads of projects from it, yeah. Um I mean, I think, the, okay, fair enough, Git is decentralized, but unfortunately, centralization kind of allows people to find stuff, and we don't have great ways of finding decentralized things all over the place. I mean, I host my own stuff, um, and I would probably encourage people to do that if I knew people with source code that they wanted to sort of keep their own ownership on, even if it is open, but 
I can see the advantage that someone else runs a service for you like that. I mean, so yeah, I think it's a shame that it's kind of gone to a a partisan sort of position now. But hey, maybe they'll be great and surprise me. I think for the vast majority of people, it's really not going to change very much. Um, just like glancing at a lot of the projects on there, there are individual developers hosting their own code for their own tiny little project that you know maybe uh, a few hundred people um, are involved in, uh, down users or you know people contributing back to the code. Um, and for those guys, yeah, hosting it on GitHub absolutely makes sense, and they wouldn't want to host it themselves. Uh, and for those guys, I don't think anything is going to change. It, it will just be business as usual. Um, they'll continue to use it for free, and, and that will be fine. So I think for the vast majority of people, there will be really no change. I found it very funny today to learn that GitLab was using Azure to host all of its backend stuff, yeah. and they've <laughs> very quietly moved over to Google Cloud instead. <laughs> I guess that's the beauty of uh, the cloud, isn't it? <laughs> it doesn't matter. But uh, <laughs> yeah. moving your stuff from GitHub to something else is a slightly more complicated matter. So it just shows you, you can change your hosting provider easily enough, but changing where your data is stored in what silo ain't so easy. And so you've got a fair bit of Python and stuff. Do you have a Git instance running on your own server then? Yeah, let's pretend I still uh, don't use SVN for that. <laughs> let's let's pretend that I've got with, what, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, whatever it was when he came up with Git. Yeah, I don't overly use Git, to be honest. Um, I'm just too lazy. Uh, I, I don't really have much point in me using Git, to be quite honest, on my own, for my own code. Like, uh, you know, my repo goes with me, so it's fine. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I obviously use it just to to be good at using it. So I should I should upgrade it, yes. And I should get rid of my track installer. Anybody who knows track knows while track still kind of exists, it's probably a bit long on the tooth in the realms of code sort of repos and web interfaces and all sorts of stuff. There's lots of newer, shinier things, but it's kind of getting your stuff out of that sort of interface is just kind of something you could be doing something else. Let's put it that way. Mm. Fair enough. And so, Graham, have you had any more thoughts on this? Not particularly, although as you've been talking, it reminded me that the um, Blender videos have been blocked from YouTube in the last 10 days. And it could lead to similar situations where, you know, open source projects end up really relying on these platforms such as GitHub and YouTube. And there's no kind of backup plan or get out clause. I mean, PeerTube came up as a, as a kind of an alternative for YouTube, but we have the same problem with federation and centralized search that we have with Matrix and that we had with GitHub and the problem that GitHub's trying to solve. And it would be wonderful if some genius out there could come up with, you know, a federated system with centralized indexing that actually worked and was simple to install and didn't require a kind of, you to sign your life over to some partisan revolution. <laughs> But that's a bit of a dream, isn't it? It's the convenience of something like YouTube or GitHub being centralized. It would take, I think, more than a genius to solve that problem. Well, I think that's the kind of disruptive idea that Twitter was initially. Um, I know, it, I don't mean it in its federated sense, but in the idea that it did something with technology that already existed that we've, we've not thought about, whatever the solution might be. It's not an obvious one. Um, I don't know. I've given it some thought, but I can't think of anything. Email works quite well. <laughs> In fact, I used to save all my code as draft draft messages. <laughs> that sounds suspiciously like you worked for some sort of MI5, MI6-like organization and you're trying to avoid <laughs> censors. 
No, I've never never had such an exciting job as that. <laughs> I remember hearing about, um, I don't know if it was terrorists, or it was some people who were up to no good, and they would register just free Hotmail accounts. And instead of sending emails, they'd just type it all out, save it as a draft, and then the next person would log into that same account, read it, and then delete the draft. And then it didn't flag up mm. anywhere. So that was, uh, I'm sure they're probably wise to that now, but that was quite genius thinking by then. But uh, anyway, before we get off on too many tangents, so Endless, Endless OS is a pretty interesting project from a technical point of view. It uses OS tree. It's based on Debian. It's got most of Wikipedia in it, but it's not looking good for them. Uh, quite a few weeks ago now, they laid off quite a few employees, including um, an old colleague of yours, Will, Michael Hall, and it's just not looking good for them, really. We still haven't really heard anything about why they did that officially. Um, presumably, you've got a little bit of inside knowledge. I'm not asking you to tell me uh, exactly what you've heard, but do you agree that it doesn't look good for Endless? Yeah, it's it's a difficult time for them. Um, I think it's interesting that a few people have tried the the general concept of a machine for developing countries where internet access is perhaps a difficult thing. Um, and it's been done a few times before, like one laptop per child um, did a similar sort of thing, slightly different technology, but yeah, the general idea was the same and, and that never really seemed to go anywhere either. Um, so it seems to be that that concept that there is a distinct need for a machine to be put into a place where there is poor internet access yet people need access to the internet or you know this this knowledge um and being able to build a business around that seems to be a very very difficult thing to achieve do you think people in a country like that want to take what would be seen as a second rate option though like you know here's a snapshot of the internet on a disc and they might go why can't i just have the internet um, do you think that might be a hard sell to make? Like, I, I certainly know that from developing countries, you will often see people are very much into brands because that's a sign of catching up to like the first world, if that's the terrible term to use for it. But it's often seen as a way of making it as the fact that you've got the Gucci handbag or some other thing that people might be craving after. Or the iPhone. Or the iPhone, yeah, in a, in a more relevant example. <laughs> Yeah, because that's the key issue here, surely, that the countries that they were targeting with this laptop operating system or desktop operating system skipped that whole generation and went straight to mobile. And surely that is, okay, it's a much harder problem to solve, but that is the solution if you want to make some money out of that world because they're mobile only, mobile first, whatever you want to call it. They're not interested in laptops. That's old hat. They never even had them. Yeah. And there are loads of companies out there who are doing micropayments via mobile, like, um, you know, feature phone level mobile yeah. that can enable um, not only access to the internet, but uh, a payment system as well, um, you know, for, for a very, very low price. So, yeah, I think you're right. The concept of a laptop or a desktop um, on, you know, in, in their home is, um, is just yesterday's news. Dare I say it's arrogant of Western companies to think that they can solve developing nations' computing problems when they seem to be doing all right as it is with mobile and, as you say, the micropayments and feature phones and even iPhones and stuff. It just seems like it's not really Silicon Valley's place 
to, to go and solve those problems. You're right. And actually, just looking at their um, endlessos.com shop for computers, I've noticed they've got a very nice kind of Silicon Valley looking PC with uh, the internet on, but it's it's called Mission, which is maybe quite bad branding, I'd suspect, for a, <laughs> for a computer that's trying to get itself into parts of Africa, like with a message. Yeah, just sort of a bit patronizing, really, isn't it? Yeah. I think the solution here is surely some kind of mesh network type thing, a kind of decentralized uh, database of... Uh, this offline data maybe that's distributed among this mesh network based on mobile devices that don't necessarily have a lot of storage but have decent networking capability in order to create this mesh network. And if you make them cheap enough that they become ubiquitous, then there's your best chance of actually making this thing work. Well, I think you might have fallen into the same trap as, as Endless there, that this already exists and it is mobile phones. Yeah, I think you're right. So maybe the best we can do is to try and do our best to uh, keep the internet free and to keep platforms as open as possible so that, you know, they've got every, everybody has this equal opportunity in getting part of the internet and being part of it too. Well, one thing that everyone's got an equal opportunity now to do is invest in Minecraft <laughs> for as little as $250. You can make sure that Minecraft gets better and better and gets to the point where it's indistinguishable from a human being. So uh, how much have you invested then, chaps? If you could picture me now, that, that gif of Fry from Futurama with the shut up and take my money, whatever the inverse of that is. That <laughs> I, I watched the video that went with the campaign and oh, I don't know. Does it smell of desperation or is that unfair? I think that at this stage, having done several crowdfunders, it does smell of desperation. This is how is this any different from a crowdfunder? They talk about how it's an opportunity for people, and instead of having to be uh, an investor with mm. over a hundred thousand dollars or whatever, anyone can get in on this. But it's just them begging for money. Which, okay, you know, on this show we beg for money every episode, so that's fair enough. But at least be honest about it. Yeah, it's really, really difficult. I know. I'm not. It's not like belittling their attempts to do what they're trying to do, which is an incredibly important project. I mean, some, an open source and privacy aware replacement for for Alexa or for Google's equivalent or Apple's equivalent is a really important piece of hardware to try and sell. Um, and I know that it must be very difficult keeping a business like that afloat. Same with lots of those kind of crowdfunded hardware projects. Um, but it's just disappointing that it, it just doesn't seem to be possible under the limitations of their current funding model. Um, and I just don't think this is going to work. And I'm worried for the future of the project. It's almost as if you have to have a multi-billion dollar company backing you to make something that actually works in this space. I mean, Amazon didn't start out with this. Google didn't start out with it. Apple built Siri into iPhones way down the line after they'd sold millions and millions and millions of them for ridiculous money. And to, to think that you can disrupt this space just by being open source just seems a bit naive to me, really. And as much as I would love it to happen, and I'm really pleased that Mozilla are getting their act together with um, Project Common Voice and, and trying to get that data together so people can actually do this. But uh, it just feels like um, the way Minecraft have gone about it is just not really successful, is it? Just doing constant crowdfunders and just not seeming to be a financially viable operation. 
I think if you compare them to purism, they're kind of roughly doing the same type of thing. Maybe they'd dispute that fact, but the fact that they're both kind of quite good at going out with press releases and doing crowdfunding, whatever, but purism seems to actually have viable things each time it does it and then uses that to fund the previous round. I was quite impressed with the guy we had on. The CEO, Todd Waver, yeah. Yes, thank you. And, you know, it just seemed like such a completely different sort of comparison between the two, but even though they're kind of using the same tactic, um, he just seems to have a much better way of doing it. My concern for people thinking about investing is that a lot of the early investment, which is where the real uh, value is going to be, has already happened. They've had $2 million of seed funding. They had uh, 350000 of angel funding in um, October 2016. So I think the value of the company has already been paid for by those early investors. Um, and what you're buying here is, is relatively low value. Um, and You've got no guarantee that the um, the earlier investors won't just sell the company for less than you've paid for it. So I would be extremely wary of um, of investing any of my money into this project. There is your hot tip. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a very good point. I mean, those those early investors could could have bought sixty five percent of the company. <laughs> yeah. But instead, the investors uh, just got some shitty uh, box with Popey's mangled voice in it <laughs> instead of uh, an actual stake in the company. Come to Fostock Live, you could get a real Popey voice. <laughs> yeah. Record it yourself. I bought one of those uh, Mark One um, Mark One Microfs, and the build quality was really good. But what was less good was the fact that it was a year late, and I had to pay. Uh, extra in postage and then i'd backed the um the extendable version which when come shipping time suddenly disappeared and i was basically getting the normal one so i've been burned by uh by their kickstarters in the past and um yeah I, perhaps that has uh somewhat clouded my view of them i see uh, the, yeah from all accounts the hardware was all right but it's just the software that lets them down because hardware wise it's not that hard to put together okay it is a challenge definitely but Putting together the software for it, that is the difficult thing. We, because, you know, a few microphones and a processor and a speaker and whatever, a few lights, that's a lot of maker spaces could knock that together in, you know, a few evenings. But the software, that takes potentially years and billions of dollars to put together. And I, I just can't see an open source alternative succeeding unless there's something very different about it. If it solves, a particular problem like for example not leaving your LAN if that was how they were selling it then it's going to do all of the processing somehow inside your LAN and it's not going to talk to any other servers or hey here's this open source server and this big load of data which you can stick on your own server and you can configure it to talk to that that seems to be how to do this thing from a grassroots level rather than trying to be this competitor to billion dollar companies so that's my simple solution to all of that um but let's uh talk about a bit more bad news the, the docker hub malware it turned out that there were quite a lot of images on docker hub that were okay they weren't doing that much wrong they were just mining a bit of monero uh pegging a few cpus wasting a bit of electricity not necessarily stealing any data but this went on for 10 months before they were removed. 
Um, there are clear parallels with the Snap Store, which will will no doubt defend promptly. Of course, the Snap app that was doing this was removed within um, hours, I think, of being uploaded, even not even discovered. So uh, that was well done by Canonical, but it does nevertheless show that there is an issue here. Um, and you know, you talked about that last time, Will. How um, verified publishers seems to be the solution. But I still don't know why these open repos, you know, app stores, whatever you want to call it, don't have stuff like that. It just seems like a terrible idea to let anyone upload stuff. Well, they do seem to have like some ratings and um, star ratings and, and people that have, have downloaded it does seem to be a metric that you could use to decide whether the thing you're downloading is legitimate or not. Um, but I guess it's quite easy to game that. It certainly looks like from the screenshots I've seen that it's, um, it's quite easy to generate millions of potential downloads um, and, and confuse the system or, or trick users into thinking lots of people are downloading this. What wasn't cleared from the news that I read was what Docker images they were that were that were people were downloading them. Why were they choosing to use these ones? Um, it doesn't seem that it was an especially exciting or new project. Um, so yeah, how did it come to be? I think that they must have gamed the system, got it to the top of the list, and then people just blindly click. Yeah, it's pretty shocking. Um, it's almost like people who are trained to be sysadmins should maybe be the people who do sysadmin stuff and making it super easy for people is a bad idea. That's not just me trying to protect my job, I swear. <laughs> yeah. That's the DevOps principle, though, isn't it? Allowing um, allowing these guys to do the, the, the ops themselves. Like, the worst part was the fact that this was detected by security firm Sysdig back in January. Uh, Sysdig is quite a good tool. Everybody should try use that if you're looking for a better version of a top-type tool. So just tech tip there. Um, and the fact that nobody in Docker responded to that, like, as you say, you know, when the snaps problem took place, that was straight away fixed as, as close to straight away as you could have. Why is nobody in Docker, a company that has a rake of money and this is their livelihood, clean this stuff up? Like, why is there not a proper security notification system? Why are they not getting on top of these things? Like, surely that should have been one of the major issues about this. If you're going to allow people to upload things quickly, you should be responding to a security alert as quickly as you can. So I don't see how you can allow that to continue in that type of manner. I mean, it's that's farcical. Well, it looks like this problem isn't going away, is it, is the bottom line, because it seems to be where we're moving. Rather than curated repositories, it's uh, easier and more democratic, maybe, I don't know, to just let anyone chuck anything into a repo and then you have to decide who to trust rather than just trusting whoever the distro maintainer is or whatever. So I'm sure some solutions will be found to this beyond just a rating system, but uh, I think we're still waiting for that in the meantime. I think if you have a boss breathing down your neck and you see this installs Apache, blah, 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 you're just going to install it and you don't care because at the end of the day, you just need to get that thing running. Mm. Well, yeah, snap install Nextcloud, for example, that just does all of that for you, <laughs> gets all the patchy running and everything. But uh, you know, in that case, yeah, we know it's coming directly from the Nextcloud guys, and so we know it's, it can be trusted to be a bit shit. Ooh, <laughs> just a joke there. Don't send me too many angry emails. But you know that can be trusted. But just there's random stuff in there from any Tom Dick and Harry, so who knows? But uh, I'm sure that the, the solutions will be forthcoming. Okay, so this episode of Late Night Linux is sponsored by EntroWare. Go to EntroWare.com 
They are a dedicated Linux computer seller based here in the UK, and they ship computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate 18.04. And they are a company who really cares about Linux. This is all they do. It's not a side project for them. They are a Linux-only company. And they've got a great range of laptops from fairly affordable stuff all the way up to real powerhouses with the latest NVIDIA graphics. So you can find something, whether it's just for a bit of email and light browsing, all the way up to 3D art, video editing, machine learning, and graphic design. And they also have some desktops and servers, and almost everything's configurable in terms of CPU, RAM, storage. And if you can't find something on the website to suit your needs, then get in contact and they can sort something out bespoke for you. They're very approachable and very nice people, so they will sort you out one way or another. And they ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And if you do buy one of the machines, then there's a drop-down box at checkout to select Late Night Linux. So they'll know that we sent you there. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Right, on to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. And do remember that we have the $5 tier now on Patreon which means you can have an ad-free experience. You get a custom RSS feed, which I realized I can test after all. So uh, yeah, that seems to be working fine. Uh, so yeah, go to uh, latenightlinux.com support for the various ways you can help us, including a link to that Patreon. Uh, and if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com contact. Uh, at this point, I suppose I need to deal again with the death of Late Night Linux Extra, it was a couple of months experiment that I did. It did not work out. Um, the four episodes will remain there available to download. Uh, I've had a lot of positive feedback from people who said that they really liked it and they're sad to see it gone. But people are very understanding of why I couldn't do it anymore. It was very stressful to put together to find the guests and book them and um, you know, once I was talking to them, it was fine. It's like, you know, like any podcast, the easiest bit is the actual talking to you, your friends and um, interesting people about interesting stuff. It's all of the other stuff that makes it difficult. So for now, that is um, dead. We'll see. The RSS feed isn't going anywhere, but um, we'll see if anything goes in it. Um, hopefully there'll be more content coming soon, but we'll have to see about that. Um, and quick mention of Fostalk Live, you're probably sick of hearing about that by now, but thank you everyone who came, um, including two of you. Fuck you, Phelim, you couldn't be bothered to come over. No, you had your excuses, it's fair enough. <laughs> but there are um, live recordings now of uh, most of the shows and even some videos, and Jesse made a call, um, uh, what do they call it, uh, with the, the taking loads of photos? Uh, time lapse. Time lapse, that's the one. Uh, and even put some music in it and stuff, which was pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, go to fosstalk.com basically, and you'll find that was I'll stick a link in the show notes, but, uh, yeah, the one that was missing was the Linux voice show, which <laughs> you claim not to be called Linux voice anymore. Graham, people will be wondering what's happening with that. Um, what's the, the TLDR on that one? When can they hear that live show? It's, it's just exclusive to our Patreon supporters. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't tempt me. I've got the bloody recording of it. Um, I, I I quite like the idea of a bootleg, actually. If you want to put it out on some white label vinyl, I think it'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I sent it to you, Phelan, didn't I? You did, yeah. And it was as close to vinyl as you could get, all right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a great show, so uh, you should put it out, man. Yeah, I know. I will. It's edited. It's ready to go. And 
I promise I will release it and um, hopefully we'll do some more podcasts. Just need to pick a name that is not Lennox means Lennox. Yeah, that was <laughs> funny. It, it was funny. It's a good name, but it might not so be might not be quite so good in 12 months time after brexit (laughs) yeah it might just be a terrible terrible reminder yes okay so this episode of late night linux is sponsored by cdn 77 go to cdn 77.com slash lnl that's for late night linux and they are a uk-based cdn provider with a standalone live streaming platform And apart from sponsoring loads of open source projects like CentOS and KDE and Fedora and Gentoo, one of their biggest clients is the European Space Agency, and they are delivering Hubble images all around the world. They were the first CDN to implement HTTP2 and Brotley compression, and they're a real innovation leader. Everything's developed in-house, and they managed to push 80 gigabits per second of live streaming through just one machine through server optimization. And they've got 500 servers all running Debian, which is what runs the CDN, and only a few of them are VMs. The vast majority of them are physical servers. And they've got 30 points of presence all over the world in North America, South America, Europe, Asia, and Australia, with over 7 terabits per second network capacity. They've got great 24-7 live support, and you can either go pay-as-you-go, or they've got monthly pricing plans uh, with no commitments or hidden costs. If you go to cdn77.com slash LNL, you can get a 14-day trial with no credit card needed. And if you do decide to stick with them, check out their first payment bonus. If you do sign up using our link, then you'll get an extra 10% off that. So go to cdn77.com slash LNL and start delivering your content. Right, so we did the news catch-up. Now we'll do the newer news, all the news that's new to news. How I miss System AU. Uh, the first one, uh, this is all much more positive. We should have probably started with this. Uh, but then again, we do everything backwards, don't we? Just like the live show. <laughs> um, Ubuntu Touch OTA4 release candidate is out, and it's pretty solid. Um, I know, Will, you don't have a huge interest in phones generally. Phelim, you do have an interest in free software-only phones. Um, do you have any interest in Ubuntu Touch, or is it still too far from being good enough? Um, I guess I'd really love a open firmware. That's really where I'd be happy. But I'm open enough to an open non-Android device. I just don't have one. (laughs) But is it not appealing to have a proper Linux box in your pocket that you can SSH into if you want to? You can do all the GNU slash Linux stuff if you want to, or it can just be a phone like an Android phone if you want it to. Well, I guess that depends on whether you're going to be able to do the docking stuff. I mean, if it's just a phone, I couldn't think of anything worse than having to SSH anywhere on a phone. I have done it, and I'm just more concerned at the fact that I didn't wipe the whole system by mistake with a typo than anything else. I don't know. I don't find phones terribly nice to use as an interface in general. I mean, I don't know whether it's the tips of my fingers being non-conductive properly or something but i just don't seem to get along with touch screens in general they're fine for things like audio players and browsing and you know things where you're you're not having to be accurate but i just i couldn't think of editing code on a phone or god no i mean maybe if you had to make one tiny edit but even then i just go find a pc and stop the grief even a long telegram message i often find myself if i'm near my pc going and sitting at it wow you really are a proper luddite aren't you <laughs> i'm just I don't see how it can be an advancement to use a inaccurate blob of a finger. It's almost like like trying to use a 
you know, a pack of sausages to control something. <laughs> it's terrible. It's like the the least accurate interface we've ever designed, and yet it's seen as a advancement. I just don't think so. Fair enough. But this is a pretty big release for them. It's not the final release yet, but I'm really hoping that they're not going to fuck about and they're going to actually get it out very soon. But this is based on 1604 rather than 1504, which means that they are not having to support all of the old unsupported bits of it. Canonical are doing that for them, um, which then frees them up to do all of the exciting stuff like get Android apps running potentially with Anbox and the various other plans that they've got. So it's good to see, as far as I'm concerned, that this is not dead because I was very worried that it would just die. And I, I just didn't think that they would even get to this stage, really, when Shotworth dropped that bombshell a year and a bit ago. And have you got a device you can try this on, Joe? I have. I've got a Nexus 5. Well, I've got a few devices that I can try it on, but the one that I do is a sort of half-knackered Nexus 5 with no microphone and stuff <laughs> that you can't really use as a phone. But it's just a mini tablet, really. And having tried it out, it is, it's good. It's much more solid than last time I tried it. It is, it's not Android at the end of the day. Uh, there are too many Android applications that I rely upon, mostly from the Google Play Store, which is going to uh, piss you off, no doubt, failing because I know you are <laughs> F-Droid only. But um, I could probably get away with F-Droid only if I really had to on Android, but I just don't think the app support is there with Ubuntu Touch and the the browser's okay and you can use some web apps for things but um you know if it was a choice between an Ubuntu phone or no phone then obviously I would use an Ubuntu phone but I just think that it's so far behind Android at this stage and iOS uh that it's it's only really for the enthusiasts at this point and I think you've brought up a very good point there Phelim that uh, it's not so much the interface on top of all the firmware that has to be free software open source because uh, Lineage is sort of open source enough, isn't it? Uh, especially if you don't flash to Google Apps, then it is basically all open source except for the bits that Ubuntu is relying on anyway, which is all the firmware, the kernel, and you know the blobs. Yeah, we really need somebody to succeed at that. Yeah, what we need is a, a company to uh, maybe make a phone that is completely open source in terms of the software that's running on it or even free software and uh maybe they could even deliver that early next year that would be nice well we'll have to see if that happens <laughs> but it is good to see that ubuntu touch lives on because maybe if the Lumen 5 works out and isn't horrendously shit then it will spawn other generations of it and we will get some genuinely free hardware that we can then install various other OSs on top of. And it would be good if it wasn't just Android as the only option for that. Yeah, much like there's more than one type of distro, I think there can be more than one type of phone distro too. And I think really that's all they are in the long run. Yeah. Um, all right, well, related to that, um, UbiPorts, who obviously are the company organization, I suppose, behind uh, Ubuntu Touch these days, they posted uh, on their blog about Article 13, which is the faceless bureaucrats in Brussels at it once again. Not to uh, sound too much like Linux voice, but uh, the EU is at it again, this time with filtering uploads and potentially censoring the internet. It's quite alarmist, this stuff, and it's not just UbiPorts talking about it. 
it's potentially quite a big deal and is going to happen soon if we don't get onto our MEPs. But I just don't see anyone actually doing that. And I think this will pass. So are we worried about Article 13? Is it going to destroy the internet? Yes. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, I think a broader answer, I, I haven't looked that much into it. And I should, I must admit. And and things like this, UB ports highlighting that it could be an issue is an important thing to do. And it's great that projects highlight issues like this that we should be more aware of and discussing in podcasts like this. Um, generally, I'm... I'm pretty um the only the only aspect of my life where I'm perhaps libertarian is with the internet and I don't think it should really be touched by government agencies. So you're not even a fan of the GDPR then? Actually no, that's good. <laughs> 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 I'm and gen generally actually I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Um of course there's a place for legislation um and it's important especially uh when people are kind of powerless to do anything themselves. This is almost the inverse of that in, in that it could inhibit content creators um, and also inhibit the innovation that has made the internet such a success in its huge, monstrous way. Is this not just people massively overreacting to quite broad language from the EU that they were kind of forced to put into this? And the fact that people are talking about, oh, well, GitHub and any kind of code repository is going to be subject to this, and they're going to have to be automatically scanning things in real time. Well, in reality, is that really going to be the case? Are you really going to have to do that just because the law says that you kind of have to? I mean, there's laws about just ridiculous stuff about you're not allowed to cross a road on Tuesdays that were on the books from 500 years ago. And, and, you know, like with the GDPR, people massively overreacting to that, saying that, oh, we're going to get 30 million euro fines or whatever. Well, no, if you don't be a dick and, you know, try to, uh, you know, not collect loads of data on people and acquiesce to requests about removing that data, should they ask, then you're not going to end up with loads of fines unless you are deliberately setting out to do that. And it just seems like a big overreaction to me. Maybe this is just optimism on my part, and maybe it's just my blind love of all things European. Um, but I just I think people are overreacting here. GDPR, I think, for the for the users of the web, have made things worse. People who don't understand about freedom and privacy, all they're now doing is being inundated with pop up requesters telling them they need to accept these new terms, or their all those emails that they ignored, or. There's so much variation in the way companies have approached GDPR in the fact that many want to see how it's going and ignoring it. And it's a bit like in the UK when you could no longer um, charge separately for paying on a credit card or a debit card. My local garage now gives you a discount if you don't pay with a, a credit card or a debit card, which is exactly the same thing. And in the end, I don't think it has necessarily much of an effect and yet it makes things harder for us, the users of the internet, and that's what worries me. Article 13 seems to be aimed at big sites like YouTube, and in that case, I think it's probably not a, not, not a bad idea that they should be in, uh, filtering and scanning for bad content. Um, but I, yeah, I don't think for the man in the street and, and the, the open source projects on the web, I don't think it really applies to them. I don't think they need to worry about it. Um, and in the case of, of YouTube, it's probably a good thing. Well, my beloved EU can do no wrong, so I'm sure everything will be fine. Um, 
in the meantime, Atari have got an Ubuntu-powered console, which is doing very well on Indiegogo and is happening. It's been backed. Everything's hunky-dory with that. So anyone interested in this? So this is their kind of reboot, at least aesthetically, of the 2600 from like the late 70s, early 80s. Um, with suppose, So I watched the campaign video once again, and they seem to promise it does everything. It will play classic games, it will play modern games, and they even mention Linux, and you'll be able to add your own stuff to it. Um, I don't know. It sounds more like a Raspberry Pi inside a, a plastic box again to me. The specs seem really good. Uh, it seems to have a very powerful processor, a reasonable graphics card uh, or graphics GPU in there. Um, it seems to be quite a capable little machine. Um, what I don't get is is why 2600 games would be of interest to anybody these days. Even retro gamers probably find the 2600 games just tedious. But I, yeah, it seems like a capable machine, so I think it's more likely to be a... Um, uh, a main cabinet kind of uh, thing that looks cool. I mean, it does look like a, a really nice piece of equipment and then that nice front wooden bezel looks really cool. So, yeah, I think people are going to use it for playing homebrew and emulators uh, and it's going to be a, a beautiful thing to sit next to their TV. Yeah, and it's got a standard x86 AMD CPU and four gigabytes of RAM in it. So it's sort of a, a, a low-end-ish computer. I mean, I, I don't think the actual specs are finalized yet, but we know that it is going to be reasonably good. And because they're basing the OS, the custom OS that they're going to make with this uh, user interface and everything on Ubuntu, you would hope that it's going to be hackable, that it's going to have uh, none of this secure boot bollocks or whatever. And you're going to, even if their software experience is terrible, you will have like a reasonable little NUC type device to install what you want on. Um, and they've even got the old controller as well, like a reboot of that, and also a more modern sort of Xboxy type controller. Um, as well as they talk about um, being able to have a media experience on it, they haven't mentioned any specifics, but it's kind of the implication is the likes of Netflix and Amazon and stuff will work on it. So it's designed to be a living room box that you can play games and have entertainment generally from. So that all sounds pretty good, um, except for this article in the register <laughs> where they actually the register wrote an article uh, a couple of months ago um no, actually I think it was back in february that was uh, quite scathing about um the the product demonstration that they'd had which was just uh, mock-ups essentially <laughs> and then atari uh, it was brought up recently and then atari claimed that's not what happened and uh, then the register produced the audio recording that this journalist had taken and it just proved exactly uh, what they'd originally written and it just doesn't look good for Atari. I mean, it's not even really Atari, is it? It's someone who bought the name and is just using the brand to pump out what is essentially a cheap PC and hopefully a decent interface on top of Ubuntu. I mean, there was a bit of a red flag in the original FAQ on the Indiegogo campaign that said they were using Ubuntu 17 or something, you know, as if they hadn't really, or maybe it was 15, or it, it was an outdated version of Ubuntu. Oh, no, it was the kernel, that was it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it said they were going to use a, a really old kernel that I think was on 1704 or something. So maybe they are just terrible at PR, but good enough to have made it happen. And 
uh, I don't know, fingers crossed that we're going to actually get something good out of this. I have not backed it. I take it none of you have. Nope. No. <laughs> no, but you you have made me sound. You have made it sound quite interesting. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, so you might be no, I won't, uh, backing I, it then. I won't back it, but I am. I'm interested to see how it develops. Yeah. What type of audio chip do the Atari Twenty Six Hundred Graham? <laughs> <sighs> so I don't. So I can't. I can't. I, at my local youth club, they had a Twenty Six Hundred, and I got blister. That that joystick design is terrible. Mm. I don't know if you've spent much time with it. I used to get blisters off it. But the Atari 800, um, which was the kind of PC they made that came after the the console, was really good. It had a decent sound chip, and it's got a decent color palette. Unsurpassable, and some of the best games still on that console. Alternate Reality the Dungeon was the best game on those. A very sad story was we were still, my pals and me, found an Atari 2600 in a cupboard in my pal's house in the late 80s, like 89, 90 maybe even, and we were still trying to play on that it, Trying to get it hooked up to a TV was a nightmare. And uh, yeah, it's crap. So why anybody <laughs> want to play any of those games, I don't know. It was crap then. And the SNES was coming out and we had to go to the video store and give them a deposit of 100 quid and pay a fiver each to then rent the actual thing. Yeah. Just to get a SNES. And we'd play that solid 24 hours and go blind. <laughs> yeah, but at the time of the 2600, there wasn't much else. That's true, I suppose. But the wood does look cool. I kind of want one now. <laughs> it does look cool. And the other emulated games, if it's a, a fairly reasonable AMD CPU, it's going to be more than capable of emulating probably even up to the sort of PlayStation 1, maybe even 2. So if it is hackable, like they say it is as well, then you, you can install what you want on it and potentially use it as a, a multimedia experience box. For everything from streaming, maybe even get Cody on there, Netflix, Amazon, as well as uh, the Atari games, as well as even some fairly modern-ish games that don't require uh, too much of a graphics card. And it could potentially be really cool. And it's not massively expensive for one of these things, but um, I would wait for the second generation personally. I'd wait to see what happens with this. Will they deliver it? Is it going to be any good? Are the reviews going to be good? And then if they go for a second generation of it where they'll have learnt from those mistakes, then surely that is the one to buy. Interesting that they're saying it comes with Tempest 4000. Now, I'm not exactly sure, but Jeff Minter, who ported Tempest, the arcade machine, to, um, I think it was the Jaguar, he created, um, I don't know if it's Tempest 4000, but he was basically got a cease and desist from Atari about 18 months ago, two years ago. I can semi-remember the story. And it's interesting that it seems that this is a turnaround and that Atari and now have probably made some agreement with Jeff Minter to bundle Tempest 4000 with this console. Tempest 4000 on Linux, that's a good thing. Well, it's definitely one to watch. And apart from anything else, if you look at the uh, Indiegogo video, they prominently mention Linux, and that has definitely got to be good. I mean, that harks back to um, what we were talking about at Foss Talk Live about, uh, I think it was you, Will, were saying that you want Linux to be a kind of stamp of quality. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're saying here that it is, uh, it's going to be solid. It's running Linux. Yeah, I mean, despite the questions about which kernel version they're running, the fact that it is running a branded Linux makes me a little bit more comfortable that this thing is going to get some updates. Well, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. But yeah, at least it is possible to do that. Yeah. So let's hope that all works out nicely. 
Okay, well, before we wrap this up, Will, I couldn't let you get away without talking about these uh, Ubuntu desktop metrics. You've done a lovely blog post over at uh, the Ubuntu blog. Uh, they have still not specified a background color, so it looks like shit on my funky Firefox profile, but uh, let's not dwell on that. Some pretty interesting stuff in here. Um, who was surprised at any of it? I'm glad to see a lot of people have got 1080 screens just like me. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of people, most people have only got one screen rather than how many of you got? Two or three, presumably? Well, alas, my PC is full of fail and I can only do two Macs. So I've got a Raspberry Pi attached looking like it's my third screen on my monitor stands, but it's just for PDFs anyway, so it's fine. I would have three if I could. I'm amazed. Will, you've got access to the raw data. We'll get back to that in a second. Am I right in thinking from this blog post, there are Ubuntu users, Ubuntu desktop users in every single country? It looks that way. I mean, I haven't drilled down into the raw data because it's, uh, you know, a Postgres database. So I don't really want to go poking around in there. Um, but the way that we have sort of processed that data and try to visualize it internally uh, via Grafana does look like there is a, at least one dot in every country, but I haven't really zoomed in to uh, to a low level to, to check that, but it looks like it. That's pretty impressive. I don't know how many distros could say that. Um, four gigabytes of RAM is the, the most common as well, which means uh, you won't be bundling any Electron apps anytime soon then. <laughs> well, maybe not. But then eight is very, very close behind. So, uh, you know, is that a matter of time before those two swap over? Yeah, and failing, you mentioned 1080p being the, the standard screen resolution. I was quite surprised. I thought the um, the thirteen thirty six or whatever it is um, would be much more uh, common. The seven twenty p ish resolution. Really? Yeah, I don't know. Just because those kind of machines are uh, so plentiful. Whenever I blag something that um, you know someone is throwing out because the laptop doesn't work anymore. Yeah, because it has a crappy screen that nobody wants to look at. That's why. No, uh, <laughs> look. All right. Mr. Snob, but a lot of people who bought a standard... It's how old has 1080p been? It's like 2007 or whatever. Yeah, but if you go and buy a standard laptop in Curry's PC World now, a 15-inch laptop, it's still going to be the 1366 by whatever, 720p-ish. That is still the standard laptop that normal people buy, not developers, sysadmins, techie people, normal people. And I thought that maybe there were more normal people using Ubuntu, but this data suggests to me that it's more techie people using it, which I suppose shouldn't be a surprise, but kind of still was a bit. I mean, Will, were you surprised that 1080p is the most uh, common resolution? Well, not really. I was surprised that um, seven, what is it, 1366 by 768 was as close to 1080 as it is. Um, I thought... Um, I thought that the HD would perhaps be a bit further ahead because I assumed that a lot of people were using new, more powerful laptops. But um, it looks like we're we're talking about sort of five or six year old laptops being the average here. Um, and so yeah, that that resolution matches matches that understanding. What surprised me though was how low 4K was. Um, high DPI 4K, and it's been uh, trumpeted as uh, as the best thing since sliced bread for a long time but it's still either too expensive or people just um, aren't able to get hold of those th that equipment uh, it just doesn't really ap appear relevant at the moment and yet so much work has gone into it yeah certainly it, yeah that's the future that's where where things are going to go um 
But yeah, for the time being, it looks like it's a good few years away. The thing that makes me sad is the fact that people don't just upgrade in place. I really hope that as much attention is still applied to the upgrade in place, because I always upgrade in place. And it is kind of weird that only 0.6 of a percent do that. I find that kind of amazing. I have a theory about this, um, which is that people are so burned by trying to do in-place upgrades in the past on other operating systems, not necessarily Linux at all, but it's just become the sort of MO in, in people's minds that if you want to get your a new oper- new version of your operating system on your PC, start again, wipe the whole lot out and start again, and everything will work better. It's probably still true, but yeah, I think that that's just the sort of the, the default position that your friend who knows about computers will take will just say, no, you know what? Blanket, start again. Well, it's what I do because it is generally going to work better because you're generally going to have collected a few little problems. And if you just wipe it, start again, new can pave, the chances are you're going to have a better experience still with any operating system. You could make the upgrade process the, the most amazing process in the world, but it's still not going to be as good as a fresh install. Lies, lies. I like the idea of being able to safely wipe out all of that cruft that I've downloaded over the years that, you know, I needed to install a particular package and with it came a hundred libraries that I don't really want anymore. I like the idea of being able to reset back to, um, back to scratch and, you know, start again and know that that stuff isn't there. Um, but uh, prepare to ring your bell. Snaps also solve that problem for us because oh. yeah, you remove a snap and all those crap, all that crap goes with it when you've removed it. So yeah, I think maybe in the future that will change. Another reason may be that people who are likely to upgrade in place are waiting for the point one release. Yeah, that's actually a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, because you're not prompted if you're running sixteen oh four. You're still running sixteen oh four and haven't been prompted. Only if you follow the news and know that there is this eighteen oh four update available and force it manually so effectively there are 0.6 percent lunatics out there who should be kept away from those pcs (laughs) then i hadn't thought about that at all they chose chose the wrong (laughs) option (laughs) (laughs) they went out of their way to cause misery upon themselves (laughs) so the awkward question will when are we getting this raw data if ever well in my original post to the mailing list, I never mentioned raw data. I mentioned percentages. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is it could be possible that if you have a small number of users in a, a out-of-the-way location using some very specific hardware, it might be possible to tie a, a set of results to a person in a location. And we want to avoid that at all costs. So I don't know. That's what the design team and the web team are working on now. How can we present this data as openly and as freely as possible whilst making sure that we don't inadvertently leak data about potentially people or machines so we need to be super careful about how we go about doing this and and that's what we're doing um we will make sure that people are able to query the data and and sort of mine it somehow but i can't i can't say for certain that they're going to be able to get raw numbers about how many individual installs of ubuntu are out there Ah oh, man, that's the question I was going to ask you. Just that's we want one number, right? We've got sixty-seven percent of people opted into this, right? We just want one number. Sixty-seven percent of what? How many hundred thousand million tens of millions? How many? 
That's all we want to know. Watch this space. I will ask the right people, and if I get uh, if I get the okay to tell you, then I'll tell you here. Okay, because that number surely can't identify anyone. If you say that there are, you know, for argument's sake, fifty million desktop Ubuntu users, that you can't and de-anonymize that data. But well, I suppose who knows? There's some very clever people out there who might be able to. So right. I do understand in the in the days of GDPR and data protection generally being a, a very serious business i can see why you've been quite vague with this and just given percentages so uh, i do hope that we do get more detailed uh, data out of this but uh, i do understand it but uh, yeah just tell us how many fucking users you've got i've been wanting to know for years <laughs> all right well with that we'd better wrap it up then uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks hopefully with the full team again so until then i've been joe i've been phelan i've been graham and i've been will See you later.